1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Andy Clark, Professor of Logic and Metaphysics, at the University of Edinburgh. His new book, Surfing Uncertainty, Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind, is just out from Oxford University Press. The predictive processing hypothesis is a new unified theory of neural and cognitive function, according to which our brains are prediction machines. They process the incoming sensory stream in the light of expectations of what those sensory inputs ought to be. On this view, only prediction errors are fed forward into the processing stream, and these are used to update subsequent predictions and guide action. In Serving Uncertainty, Clark explains the theory from the perspective of embodied cognition, addressing such questions as how it alters the classical view of cognition as being sandwiched between perception and action, and also how attention is employed to modulate the sensory flow. He considers the current empirical support for the theory, as well as its implications for traditional be- debates in epistemology, our understanding of schizophrenia and autism, and concerns about implicit bias. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Andy Clark, are you there?
2: Yes, I'm here.
1: Hi. Hi, uh, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. I'm glad to uh, welcome you to the podcast.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, so we'll be talking about your... New book, Surfing Uncertainty, Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind, um, which is just out from Oxford University Press. Um, before we get into the uh, discussion of the book itself, maybe you can tell us something about um, your philosophical uh, background or your your background in general, I should say, in relation to the book um, and then how you came to write this particular book.
2: Yeah, um, I guess – I've always been, in some sense, a philosopher of cognitive science. Um, I, I started out uh, many years ago basically working on connectionism and artificial neural networks. I wrote a couple of books on that. Uh, then I got interested in robotics and embodied cognition, and there was a, a book on that. And uh, after that, I became interested, or maybe simultaneously, but I became interested in the extended mind, and there was some work on that as well. That's something that might come up a bit later in our, our discussion today. And there's a certain sense in which I, I see these kinds of stories, a predictive processing, as I prefer to call them, stories that I'm talking about in the book, as a way of having the, the best of all of those paradigms that I'd been interested in before. Um, so I think that you get the best of connectionism, dynamical systems approaches. You get a way of making systematic sense of the extended mind, you get a hook into work in real-world robotics. And as a kind of side benefit, I think you actually get uh, a little bit of classical cognitivism, a bit of structured, systematic uh, representation. So because of this this nice sort of um, deal in which I can apparently have an awful lot of uh, a lot of cakes and eat them, mm-hmm. I became interested in uh, the predictive processing uh, perspective. As for the background of writing the particular book beyond that, there's nothing more to it, really, than than that, that it just um, brought together an awful lot of interest. And I thought it was a good time for a philosopher of embodiment, if you like, to be having a go at this, because there was only really one other book out there. Uh, when I started looking at this, actually, that book wasn't even out there at the time. And that was Jakob Huy's book, um, right. on um, The Predictive Mind, which is a fantastic treatment of these issues but from a sort of staunchly um, less embodied perspective. And so I wanted to see what would happen if we took these stories and put them together with interest in uh, embodiment, cognitive extension, that kind of stuff. Uh,
1: good. So, yeah, it is It is a synthesis of a lot of your previous work, um, and it does add that um, interesting new element of, you know, how does this predictive processing or predictive coding model um, fit with with uh, those sorts of embodied robotics, um, extended mind sorts of concerns that you've been um, dealing with. Um, can you just, for listeners who are not so familiar with this area of of uh, cognitive scientific or neuroscientific research, um, can you give a brief view overview of what the predictive coding hypothesis, or as you call it, predictive processing? Uh, model is,
2: yeah. I mean, of course, there's a there's an awful lot to say there. I don't right. want to, uh, to kind of chuck too much in the pot all at once. But the um, you now the the basic idea in these models is that moment by moment, what brains are trying to do is to predict the sensory flux, to predict the incoming barrage of sensory information across all of the modalities. Um, the the kind of thought is that. By trying to predict that information, you're actually driven to form a model, a grip on how the world is. And that would take a bit more unpacking. But one thing that I think I can put on the table at the outset is the idea that this is information that enables a system to self-supervise its own learning. So if my brain makes a prediction about what the next sensory input's going to be, um, the good thing is that the next sensory input comes along like. So um, so there's always a flow of sensory information. And so if I try and predict that flow and get stuff wrong, I can know about it, or my brain can. So this is information that is available from what Chris Elias Smith calls the organism's perspective. And I think that's important. Um, it's a way of, as it were, seeing how we might generate a, a grip on a structured external world, when the only information that's actually available to the brain is a kind of time-varying sensory signal itself. But by trying to predict that signal, we generate a model of the world that we can then use to try and predict that signal. So it's got this nice sort of bootstrapping feel about it. That's the sort of learning angle. And then I think if you move it into online, um, the online use of this kind of machinery, the idea is that we've got now some... um, some knowledge, if you like, the sort of knowledge structure that is imparted by that kind of process that is forever trying to construct that incoming sensory signal for itself, using knowledge about the world, probabilistic knowledge about the world. So as processing unfolds in these stories, at each higher neural level is trying to guess the activity of the level right below it, which is treated as if it was a kind of raw sensory signal. And that leads eventually to guesses at the very lowest, maybe just post-retinol for vision, for example, levels. And then when the top-down attempts at prediction go wrong, you get prediction error signals. They're one of the sort of uh, big players in these stories. And these are fed upwards and sideways to recruit new top-down guesses until eventually the process of top-down guessing um, successfully accommodates the incoming sensory signal. And it's at that point, if these stories are right, that a clear percept is formed and a sort of structured world comes into view. So I think the, you know, the, the, the sort of um, cash value of that is that moment-by-moment moment perceptual experience will always reflect a, a kind of combination of how you expect the sensory stream to be and um, how the sensory evidence currently is. So a sort of balance between top-down and bottom-up information. Um, and I actually wondered, but I'll, I'll ask you if this is apt or not, whether it would be good to give an illustration of this using sine wave speech. i fired one up on my, um, on my desktop just in case you wanted it. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, sure. If you can illustrate it, that, that's fine.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's have a go get- then. So the kind of, what I think this, these kinds of demos are good for, um, you can do them with vision, but this is a kind of a, a sound medium, so I thought this would be a good case is just showing the kind of difference that having a good top-down model can make for moment-by-moment perceptual experience. So I'm going to play you um, a little clip of what's called sine wave speech. This is speech stripped of most of the normal signal, and what's left is just a kind of outline, a sort of skeleton of the original signal, in which you've just got a set of sort of tone whistles, patterns of dynamic changes in the signal. Most people, when they're first exposed to this, can't actually hear the speech that, uh, that if you like, was the original signal. Mm-hmm. But then once you've heard that speech, that sine wave version should sound very different to you. So let's have a go. Tell oh, It was a sunny day, and the children were going
0: to the park.
2: So that was a sine wave um, version. If I now give you the actual sentence
0: it was a sunny day and the children were going to the park.
2: And I now play the sine wave back again. It was a sunny
0: day and the children were going to the park.
2: For most people, if they weren't already familiar with sine wave speech, the first time they heard that, it, wouldn't, it would be nothing but a set of pure tone whistles. Then I kind of rapidly install in you a good top-down model of um, the way of what's salient and interesting in that signal. And after that, the sineway speech should sound um, very, very different to you. Yes. So I'll do it one more time, and then we'll talk about it
0: a bit. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. Yeah.
2: We so we could go on and on doing that. Um, and after mm-hmm. a while, if we did that for a bit, you would become a kind of native speaker of sine wave speech and you be able to decode these sentences without being, um, without being given the, the normal sentence so what's going on here really is that we use prior knowledge in order to sort out the signal from the noise and I think it's that process that turns noise or just sensory stimulation in general into a structured percept. and that I think is what's um, really cool at the heart of the whole PP picture, it's uh, that step from sensory information to structured perception being made not by a feed-forward sort of accumulation of evidence, but mostly by a top-down meeting of the incoming evidence with a uh, with act prediction.
1: Okay, so there's I mean there's a lot of different pieces and and, and themes to pursue in that, um, which which you do address in the in the book, um, in terms of uh, its relation to more traditional um, Debates in, in philosophy about um you know direct and indirect realism and then uh you know the the so-called what, what I think Elizabeth um uh Susan Hurley had meant – calls the uh, the classical sandwich of 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 perception and cognition and action and i want to get to those those themes but let me let me just and also how you add to that um the The element of this embodiment right because as as you mentioned um, earlier you know jacob Hoey's book um, was very from an internalist sort of perspective and and the example that you in fact just gave uh of of the sound wave speech or the sine wave speech um, uh, doesn 't really uh show the role of embodiment in this whole process yeah. uh, very clearly right so um so I want to get to the embodiment part in a moment. Let me let me just ask. Uh, one of the criticisms that I have heard uh, about this model is, you know, from a number of different things, is that you know it's all very—it's a nice theory. Um, you know, maybe it accounts for some things. I mean, it certainly seems there's there certainly seems to be a, a nice uh, theoretical description of, of of that phenomenon of of of. of what you just played us, you know, the sine wave speech and understanding. Um, uh, But there's doubt about, uh, you know, whether this is actually what the brain, how the brain works. Um, And uh, it's certainly not, I mean, I don't want to give the impression as far as I know that, you know, this is already sort of the default view within cognitive science or anything. It's a a new theory. Um, It's still being developed. So, uh, you know, there's there's a bit of 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 promise here, uh, but I I was wondering if you could give us a sense of you know how is it standing at this moment, right? So the 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 theory has been out for a number few years. Um, how does it stand at this moment in terms of both empirical support from the neurosciences in particular, because it is a theory of of how the brain functions. Um, uh, and then, you know, how it stands within perhaps the wider um, cognitive scientific community. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's a, it's a good and difficult question. And, you know, uh, the standing of the theory in the scientific community probably depends a lot on who you ask. Um, so I tend to hang out with a lot of people, um, cognitive and computational neuroscientists, who take this as pretty much a given that something in this ballpark is going to be the right way to approach neural processing. Um, but of course I'm talking to a, to a subset of people and that something in this ballpark matters too because there are a lot of fine-grained differences between different ways of um, applying these sorts of general ideas. So the, the, the kind of question you're asking about the state of the evidence, I, I think the right thing to say is that this sort of story has been widely applied it makes new and successful predictions in a lot of domains ranging all the way from say face recognition to the auditory detection of unexpected or oddball stimuli extended recently to make contact with decision theoretic work on habitual versus deliberative choice work on emotion and interception lots of um so it's it, it kind of seems to me to be um i've forgotten the exact word but it's a Flourishing research program, you know what I mean? It's uh, that, progressive. Uh, that's probably progressive research. Something, something from, uh, from my old philosophy of science days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's lack of yeah.
2: uh, A good progressive research program at the moment. You know, there are no clear anomalies for it, um, although that in itself could turn out to be a, a problem. We might come back to that later. Um, but in every particular domain, I think it makes contact with enough basic neuroscientific conjecture to become testable. And so just to take one example, um, the, the face detection work that I mentioned, it's a nice, very, very, you know, I think it's one of the good examples here. It's work by um, Tobias Egner and colleagues. And what that work managed to do was to compare a feed-forward kind of um, model of the fusiform face gyrus as a, face, a specialized face detector with a model that that put a lot more stress on the kind of um, downward-looking prediction process where you might think that what the fusiform face gyrus really is is a face prediction or a face expectation area. And what they found is that um, response, fMRI, uh, bold signal response in in that area, actually made an awful lot more sense, if you like, as... um, when it was considered as expectation of face rather than presence of face. And they did this very delicately by sort of um, setting up a situation where you could change the level of um, face expectation that agents had, um, asking them then to make a decision about whether something was a face or wasn't a face um, when it turned up on the screen. And it turned out that cells in um, in that area were... Uh, Twice as much influenced by face expectation as they were by face um, presence, if you like.
0: Mm-hmm. So that you know that
2: kind of work is very. I think that's the right kind of thing to do. You want to do a kind of Bayesian model comparison here. You want to compare very specific predictions, the particular areas that make contact with existing work in neuroscience, but bring in this new element of prediction and ask whether um, and de- devise new experiments to try and work out whether that stuff is actually better understood through the lens of something like predictive processing. Okay, so I think the the, the the sort of take-home message for me there is that case by case, we can do this um, and put the theory to, to little sort of micro-tests. But what you can't do, and I don't see how you could ever do it, is put the theory to a sort of macro-test, because it's supposed to be a sort of unifying theory, but you can't test it as a unifying theory. all you can do is test the little bits mm-hmm. and hope that over time enough of them kind of multiply for people to start to think, well, maybe this is a unifying theory after all
1: okay, good um so say something uh, can you can you say something about um how action gets into the picture i mean I had mentioned that before, and um it's 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 obvious it's sort of what you bring to the table to the to to the predictive processing. Uh, your interpretation of the model. Um, so, can you can you explain how action gets in there? Yeah. 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 So,
2: so, I think, I mean, the extension to action in the in the sort of um, bedrock theory here is mostly down to Carl Friston. So, what Friston and Carl and his colleagues have sort of added to the more traditional picture of top down prediction is this idea that there are two different ways in which prediction error can be minimized. One way of minimizing prediction error is to change the hypothesis that you're bringing to bear, if you like, change the prediction. Um, And that's the sort of stuff that Richard Gregory had had looked at. Um, If you think, for example, about something like the, the hollow mask illusion kind of idea there is that, um, that we, if you look at the hollow mask from the, uh, the hollow side, it will look as if the nose is pointing outwards. Maybe this is because we're deploying a strong top-down expectation that that's how faces are, and that's trumping some of the sensory information so that we get this sort of percept. But it's sort of like the sine wave speech case. This is just in the domain of um, simple perception. If you try and extend that to action, one good thought, Um, this was, I think, the original Priston thought here, was that uh, another way to minimise prediction error is to change the sensory inputs themselves so as to bring them more in line with your predictions. So the the fundamental thought about action is that that that's what it's all about, that it's a way of changing sensory inputs themselves to bring them in line with prediction. And So now you can sort of, you can play that out in different ways according to what sort of um, how shall I put it? What sort of grain of action you're trying to explain? So, for for basic motor action, the idea is that proprioceptive predictions, predictions about sort of um, about muscle spindle kind of um, settings and activities, uh, the proprioceptive predictions act as motor commands. So the thought is. Um, you predict a flow of proprioceptive information. That flow is not currently actual. And you reduce prediction error with respect to that prediction by having the body um, move in that kind of way. That the prediction acts as a motor command to move the body so as to cancel out the prediction error with regard to proprioception there. So that's how that works for sort of um, kind of here and now motor action. But you can also play that out at longer timescales and think that um, if I have a sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, if I'm going to go looking for, for a restaurant, if I want to eat, then maybe um, I have a sort of prediction that I'm going to go and find a restaurant, and that prediction results in, in various, recruits various kinds of action, like, um, I don't know, clicking on the screen to bring up um, information about local restaurants. And of course, that in itself involves proprioceptive predictions that carry out the screen clicks, but that's action at a sort of a different kind of time scale. So there is this, I think the kind of the unifying thought here is meant to be these things that look so different, like um, motor commands, desires, um, uh, beliefs about the world, maybe in a way they're just sort of differently inflected versions of a, a fundamental underlying thing, which is top-down prediction.
1: Okay, so, I mean, another aspect of the theory that you emphasize is the hierarchical nature of of the processing, right? So there's um, sort of, uh, there's both the error prediction, you know, the error signal is is sort of fed, uh, I don't know if you want to say forward or fed, further up to the hierarchy. If, if there's an error signal, it's fed to the next... Uh, level of the hierarchy higher up and then there's a prediction at that level that's you know sort of coming back down um and this this uh, um you know this top down and uh you know bottom up sort of processing is going on but it's also going on you know at each sort of at each level um up to uh well you don't actually limit it to the the level of the organism and which is another interesting theme because that gets into the extended and yeah. group mind stuff but um uh can you can you say a bit about this you know how the how the theory how does it apply to you know all these different hierarchical levels i mean is it is it should we be conceptualizing it in the same way at at every level i mean you've you've given a nice you know picture of how it goes with the models and the error predictions and the you know actions that are you know uh you know helping you uh reduce your your um your error signals um that's the basic model but it's also hierarchical and so i guess the question is you know to what extent should we just simply say yeah this this is the model at at every level of the processing hierarchy
2: so so I think I need to get you to disambiguate something about hierarchy here. Okay. Uh, so often when, uh, when I'm talking about hierarchy, I'm talking about um, sort of um, processing hierarchy. So the, the idea would be that within the brain itself, there are multiple levels at which the prediction machinery is working, where the higher the level, roughly speaking, um, the more... Abstract or the more spatio-temporally extended the predictions will be. And at the lower levels, they're much more like sort of predictions of how little sort of patches of light and dark might alter as I move my head around. At the higher levels, they might be predictions about the identity of the agents in front of me, and that does not change as I move my head around um, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So there's a sort of hierarchy there in the processing. But then when I heard your question... That made me think that you were maybe thinking about hierarchy in some broader sense, a kind of, a kind of like applying these stories to brains and to persons and to groups, so something, something more like I don't know, sort of levels or, or something like that. So, um, which one of those, or was it both of those?
1: Well, they, I, I suppose the question is, how do those two different views, um, how how are they related to each other? Um, because, uh, so there is going to be some sort of neural, um, hierarchy, presumably that is going to be processing yeah. the, uh, you know, so you'll have models. I mean, as I understand, there are, there are, there are, there's going to be a model, uh, progressively more elaborated maybe at different at at the multiple levels of the processing so we're talking about levels of processing um Mm -hmm. but then there's also um uh at, at you know if you're going to describe what's happening at each level uh you would describe it using the same sort of conceptual machinery is that does that is that correct
2: yeah, that is, that, that is right. Um, would I say that it's more elaborated, as you were saying, the hierarchy? Um, you know, if you want a sort of rich, highly elaborated picture of how the world outside the body is, then I think it's the simultaneous activity across all the layers of the hierarchy mm-hmm. that gives you that. So, you know, the higher, the higher levels might be specializing in stuff like, say, um, object and person identity. But our experience of the world, of course, when it's rich and elaborated, has an awful lot of details of just how light and shadow is on this object right now and so on. And you only get that by having activity at all the lower levels at the same time. So it's that, it's that kind of overall take on the world that, that I think is the, um, is probably the right suspect for um, filling in the content of the percept like or the perceptual flow but there but but i can tell there is this other issue that you're sort of bumping up against which is something something like we're using a single vocabulary here of, of sort of prediction prediction error and this thing i haven't talked about yet precision i, I think we'll probably come to that right to um to attempt to shed light on all kinds of different things all the way from processing in in one of these uh, sort of, you know, between a couple of these levels of one neural area um, all the way through to trying to understand um, what the brain as a whole is doing and uh, how it sort of uh, entrains the whole organism in, in complicated action cycles that might be part of social structures and so on. So there is a, I think the, the, the unifying hope here is that is that these are the fundamental particles, if you like, that construct um, cognition at all of these different scales. Mm -hmm. But it's not – this is something I'm I'm trying to get a bit clearer about myself, but it's the intent isn't to dissolve the differences between those scales any more than the intent is, for example, to dissolve the differences between what different areas within the brain are doing. Um, The idea is to reconstruct those differences – in terms of different ways of using predictions and prediction errors and different things you might predict in you might be predicting. So so I think there's a kind of the the trick right now that I don't think this literature is quite pulled off, but it's um you know it's a, a job for the future, is to simultaneously do justice to the kind of diversity of um of levels and scales and areas and um cognitive equipment if you like uh at the same time as presenting this sort of unifying story um i I don't see any in principle um contradiction there but i think it's something that needs to be done a bit more delicately than um it's been done so far
1: okay that's that's fair enough um so let's um you mentioned waiting uh and that is an important part of of how the processing occurs um uh, and at that point, also, I mean, in addition, the the aspect of of, of conscious attention and how attention is deployed uh, in this waiting process um, also uh, comes into play. So the you in the book you you kind of progressively elaborate. I mean, sort of reiterating the theory itself. You kind of pro- progressively elaborate the the theory itself by adding you know each of the different different pieces. So. Can you um, explain how uh, the the weighting of uh, of the incoming sensory input works to um, uh, you know within the model, and then the role of of conscious attention in there?
2: Yeah, uh, well, at least I'll have a go with the weighting and maybe <laughs> back to consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the important thing with the weighting stuff is that um, prediction error signals in these in these stories. Are computed at every level of processing all the time, so that means that there are prediction errors throughout the whole um, throughout the hierarchy as sensory information comes in you can alter the weight in on any aspect of those prediction error signals so it wouldn't just have to be for example altering the weight in on very early sensory information you could alter the weight in on prediction errors. Um, with regard to very, very high-level expectations while keeping the weight in high on prediction errors with regard to the very low-level incoming stuff. Um, I think this is, is quite important, that as it were. The, the weight in stuff here enables, enables you to modulate the, the flow of processing in ways which are very, very delicately sensitive to what would be good in the particular context that you're in. So just backing off that a little bit, maybe I jumped in a bit, a bit too far there. But the basic idea is that you want to make the, the best and most flexible use of the flow of prediction error that you can. And the idea is that in order to do that, you want to estimate not just the prediction error, but the reliability of that prediction error signal here and now for the particular task that I'm trying to perform. Um, so, for example, um, visual information might be more important for one kind of task than it is for another. And in a task for which it's very important, you want to give high weighting to error signals um, with regard to vision. In a different task, you might want to give higher weighting to error signals with regard to sound, for example. So, precision here is just the, it's, technically, it's just statistically, it's the inverse variance of the prediction error signal and it's setting error bars around the error signal according to how reliable the brain thinks that particular little fragment of error signal currently is. So a high-precision error signal enjoys greater post-synaptic gain. That means it has more influence over the unfolding processing. But even a very large prediction error signal, if you give it low precision, would be rendered kind of systemically impotent. It wouldn't drive learning. It wouldn't recruit further processing. And this is it's kind of quite important this is the this is a mechanism that I think lets you run the prediction engine offline so you can use it for example to power mental imagery and simulation based imagery if you run the usual kind of machinery but you set the precision on proprioceptive prediction error very low that means that um, that motor action won't ensue but everything else will unfold as before so it's this sort of it's just supposed to be this mechanism for um, for sculpting the process in, in ways that allow context to to play a really major role.
1: Okay, that's, yeah.
2: that's just a waiting bit. We should back we should backtrack and talk about consciousness and attention. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. So why don't you? One free.
2: Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, well, um, yeah. So. So that process of weighting the prediction error signal is supposed here to, to underlie attention. Um, there would be automatic sort of increases on weighting. Maybe we're kind of preset so that um, so that loud flashes or loud noises will will capture attention, and that means that we're preset to give high weighting to um, to errors with regard to events like that, meaning that they will impose themselves very rapidly on the uh, on the processing machinery. Um, but then there's the, the idea of deliberate attention, top-down kind of deliberate attention. Agentive attention would probably be a better way to talk about it, because um, it's all top-down here. <laughs> um, and, and the thought there would be that if I'm trying carefully to perform a particular task, then, all, then what's going on really is that um, the the different aspects of the prediction error signal are automatically being weighted in ways that um, in ways that are task specific. So, you know, if you're a if you're a professional athlete, then you'll have a very very a very very delicate way of assigning um, precision weighting to various proprioceptive predictions that you're making to entrain motor actions of one kind or another. Um, how it all links into conscious experience, I think is a, is a huge and unanswered question. Um, obviously the, the work that's been going on in, in kind of cognitive neuroscience over the last 10 or 15 years, slowly disentangling attention and conscious experience so that you can kind of see that, that attention is a, a kind of independent, well, independent, is that the right word? Um, that it's a genuine element, that it's not just uh, not just another word for consciousness or something. But attention is a genuine other element here. This sort of stuff, I think, makes good sense in these frameworks. Exactly where to pin the pin the kind of um, consciousness tail on the predictive donkey
0: mm-hmm. is
2: a bit less clear. Um, it's not. I don't think it's at all obvious what it is about certain aspects of the processing under these stories. That makes those aspects of processing get to populate conscious experience and other aspects of the processing don't. It'll be something to do with precision. So it's a reasonable thought that only um, only high precision only high precision prediction errors get to alter the flow of conscious experience. That sounds, I think that's that sounds right to me. Um, but beyond that, I think there's a lot of work to do in and trying to see how these models either sit or don't sit with standard positions in the literature on the sort of neuroscience of consciousness stuff like the global workspace theory from right. Bernard Bars or Tononi's information integration story,
0: mm-hmm.
2: just not clear yet exactly how this stuff should come together. Um, on the bright side. Um, we're just starting a four year um, e r c european funded project uh, here at Edinburgh to look at just that so we 've got four years to think about um predictive processing and the construction of conscious experience so maybe watch this space a bit on that one
1: excellent um let me let me get to a um a more philosophical debate um so there 's a traditional debate you know between know, direct realism or um, indirect realism in terms of our yeah. uh, relation to to the the external world, um, which you know has all sorts of you know epistemological implications and positions and so forth. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things that uh, this issue actually comes up for a more internalist interpretation of of the predictive coding mm-hmm. or predictive processing models. You know, you're, you're. It's, it's too Cartesian in a way, and I think my, my understanding is that you were trying to divorce, in a sense, the model itself from this perhaps too Cartesian interpretation of it. Um, so, can uh, you, you defend a view that you call um, not indirect realism, uh, sure. and a, you know, in which there's no sort of representational veil, like a sort of a, a Lockean. Uh, sort of view there's no there's no representational veil between us and the world um, uh, as in the classical sort of um, indirect realism. so can yeah. you can you say a word about your your not indirect realism and how it fits into the traditional debates um, in epistemology between these two sort of direct and indirect realist positions yeah,
2: I'll try and try and have a go for that um, particular label, not indirect realism, the person to blame or thank is Michael Rescola at, um, where is he? Um, Santa-, Santa
1: Barbara, I think. Santa
2: Barbara, that's right, Santa Barbara. Um, so he thought, uh, after a, I did a talk uh, about sort of four or five years ago there on this, and uh, afterwards he said, hey, maybe that's um, best described as not indirect realism. So <laughs> I've adopted that, but it's, uh, <laughs> it can seem a bit Weasley, I agree. Um, so the, the, the kind of thought is, it's not, I mean, the main thought and I don't think anyone should contest this, is that the agent encounters a world, not sense data. Um, There's no attempt, uh, at least on my part, to deny that in encountering that world, inferential processes are involved. But what I think is important is that those inferential processes themselves are kind of action-oriented or action-involving all the way through. So... um, The real dividing line, I think, is is really between um, what you can think of as reconstructive and non-reconstructive approaches. So a a reconstructive approach is one where you would um, expect sensing to be a way of getting lots and lots of information into the system so that the system can then, if you like, reason about the world and decide what to do. So a bit like, um, I think you might have mentioned Susan Hurley earlier. Um, But anyway, so Susan Hurley had... Uh, the picture of the classical sandwich where you have sensory information coming in and then cognition kind of happens and the output of cognition is action. And that would be the sort of classical sandwich that she and others, including me, uh, would want to reject. Um, So in a a more non-reconstructive approach, then the better way to think about things is that you get little sort of fragments of sensory information in. They recruit action that recruits better sensory information or different sensory information and that it's that kind of cycle that solves the problem so it's not that you suck in enough information so that the brain can do all of the serious problem solving work and just let the sensory um, effectors and motor effectors then put that solution to work in the world it's a much more interactive process so you know the Sort of poster poster children for this sort of story would be um, stuff from ecological psychology, like the diving gannets or the or um, the famous outfielder stuff, where the outfielder runs just so as to keep a certain sort of sensory parameter within certain simple bounds. So, uh, so you run so as to keep the optical so as to cancel out any perceived optical acceleration in the ball path. And if you do that, then you end up being in the right place when the ball comes down Um, so this is like this is a a good example of a non-reconstructive solution because you don't sort of stand there suck enough information in to work out where the ball's going to land and then go and get into that place in fact if you ask outfielders to do that they do it very very poorly (laughs) instead it, it it requires this sort of ongoing ongoing sort of action involving Dance with the world, and and that's it's it's in that sense that I think um, I think we need to think of these systems because of the way that they simultaneously want to minimise prediction error by um, by finding better hypotheses, but also by acting so as to minimise prediction error through action. Um, the fact that they're constantly doing those two things that induces just the right kind of circular causality to implement these non-reconstructive solutions. Um, and in that sense, I think that we you certainly don't have to align these pictures with a classical internalist kind of story. Um, in fact, I personally, I think it's wrong to align them with that story, but it's certainly not compulsive.
1: So, yeah, I mean, elsewhere you also called the whole idea of a Cartesian the Cartesian evil demon, those thought experiences, somehow a, a red herring. And I, I take it that, you know, the role of action in your picture kind of makes, is what makes that a red herring?
0: I guess
2: so. I mean, I, I suppose I would have, I kind of think of those um, thought experiences as a red herring anyway. <laughs> um, but um, what should we say? Well, not
1: not that? everyone I, for agrees. For example, I think,
2: I, I, I Maybe one way to get at this is I don't think it would be any kind of blow to embodied cognition Mm -hmm. if it turned out that we were all um, brain suspended in matrix-type world, you know. Mm -hmm. If if it turned out that um, that what's going on here for me was actually um, my brain is kind of hanging in a nutrient bath somewhere, being fed sensory inputs that... um, as you might say, but I'll resist this in a minute, make it seem as if I'm moving my hand and picking up the Coke can. Um, I don't think that would make any difference at all to what matters um, as far as embodied cognition is concerned, which is a lot of the, a lot of the problem solving as I kind of deal with uh, the situations that confront me in the world involves leaning heavily on properties of the world and taking action in the world in certain ways. And, of course, this would be true in Matrix world just as much as it is in this world. You know, the, the evil demon there would have to make it so that as I gave a motor command of a certain kind, then the inputs changed in a certain sort of way so I could get the whole circular causality thing going. But the evil demon would have to make it that i lean on the world in just the right way. I can write stuff down on sticky notes and re-encounter it tomorrow morning so that I don't have to store that in bio-memory. You know, that's um, I'm with Dave Chalmers on this one. Matrix world is just a different version of the world we live in. It's just um, it's just the world we think we live in, but with a different fundamental physics. But we got used to having different fundamental physics. We know physics can turn out to be really weird, um, but uh, that wouldn't mean that we're not embodied agents interacting with a real world.
0: It's, so yeah, deep yeah. down,
2: that's why I think that. Uh, Deep that, down, that's why I think that the sort of uh, evil demon thought experiments don't work, They won't advance the discussion here because, in order for them to work, they have to recreate all the apparatus that is really of interest anyway. Which is, you know, how much do we in practice lean on on body, world, and action?
1: So, from an epistemological perspective, then, um, I take it that you are you would be rejecting a kind of disjunctivist view. In which, you know, we need two separate, you know, uh, where uh, the experiences that we have kind of internally, you know, when we're, let say, imagining a perception, um, and then when we're actually perceiving, um, you would want to give one account, but they're both going to be uh, uh, non-internalist.
2: Um, that's a very, that's a very tough one. I actually... Don't think that I quite know what I want to say about the disjunctivism question, uh-huh. um, because after all, there's still room in a story like this for a difference between the case where, for example, um, I don't know, the evil demon feeds the sensory information in in just the kind of usual way, so that. Um, so that my experience of what's on the desk in front of me is constructed in just the usual way that I do it, versus a case where, um, if you like, um, the demon itself is stepping outside of the usual bounds and um, and sort of interfering with the the internal brain processing, so as to bring it about from that end, if you like, that I have the experience of seeing... Whatever it is on the desk in front of me. So this will be like. Uh, so there's what I'm trying to say here is that there's. I think there's room even in an evil demon scenario for uh, a kind of disjunctivism. This is probably quite a contentious thing to say, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't seem doesn't that it doesn't seem wrong to me. I mean, there, there's enough room in that kind of scenario for there to be a difference between ways of constructing an experience which from the point of view of the agent mm-hmm. they can't tell the difference
0: mm-hmm. between
2: those two ways and you know the, the kind of disjunctivist thought as i understand it is maybe that's all that those experiences have in common is the agent can't tell the difference between them um, so i think you could probably reconstruct it there um do i think it you know i think To me, at least, it's more compelling to rest with the, the, the basic kind of predictive processing story here, which would be that, given the role of top-down expectation in the construction of an ordinary sensory experience, um, what's going on in cases of hallucination is just a kind. It's not sort of a, a wholly different sort of thing, as the disjunctivist seems to think, but rather it's a uh, very much a version of the of the same thing. It's just like you know you might think that ordinary experience is um, a kind of controlled hallucination, but kind of controlled one, and that um, other kinds of experience are a, a less well controlled version of that. So,
0: hmm.
2: so I don't know. I think these are, these epistemological questions are a little bit beyond my um, well, you can probably tell beyond my expertise here, um, but my. My intuitions are that um, that we shouldn't be trying to decide between more versus less embodied ways of understanding predictive processing by pushing at evil demon kinds of scenario because I think that they, they, they just invite all kinds of considerations which I think belong more in the realm of metaphysics than in the realm of um, you know what's the best way to understand the machinery that actually makes cognition possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, you just mentioned you've been mentioning you know this the role important role of of top down expectations. Um, and um, so one of the questions that does come up uh, for this is you know where do your where do your models come from that 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 generate these expectations. Um, uh, one way to put that is you, where do you get your priors, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, uh, but I guess I, I, so there is a sense of, um, first of all, you know, wh- where do these models come from? How are they, you know, constructed and maintained? Um, you know, you give a kind of a bootstrapping story in, in to some of that. But there's also the further question, the further worry is of what, Type of what used to be called perhaps um, uh, you know cognitive penetrability of perception, um, which also extends to you know just worries about implicit bias and you know seeing what you expect to see, and there's a sense in which um, well we do we do see what we expect to see in in the specific sense of the model. Um, so could you that it's that's a kind of a group of questions that has to do with where the models come from, you know how they're how they're kind of maintained or updated or changed, and you know whether this picture you know results in or implies some sort of uh, I don't know unwanted or um, uh, yeah I'll just say you know some unwanted uh, degree perhaps of of cognitive penetration or even you know t- to go to another level implicit bias. Um, are we kind of condemned to you know once we're once our models at the various levels are are trained up, however that happens you know are we sort of just you know trapped in our own expectations and um, and um, we can never really get over uh, any sort of implicit biases or things like that
2: yeah, yeah i mean uh, as you say there's a there's a lot of a lot of different things going on in, uh, in those questions. Um, one place to start, I suppose, about um, the issue about where do the priors come from. Um, there's a very powerful learning story here, as I was sort of saying at the outset, um, where you sort of use uh, prediction error signals to generate models of stuff pretty much from scratch. But it's probably worth also pointing out that there's there's no there's no difficulty in accommodating as much innate expectation as you want so you know if it if it turns out that, uh, that evolution plugged a lot of um, bedrock expectations into the into brains like ours about for example um I don't know, um, causality or, or temporal order or maybe more specific things. Um, there's, but that could certainly be, be done. So there's. So I think these stories are actually, although they sound a little bit as if they belong on the empiricist side, and that's kind of where I would pitch them, in principle, they can accommodate as much nativism as, as you want. Mm-hmm. It's sort of inbuilt, inbuilt expectations. Um, there's also a sense in which stuff that you wouldn't think of as expectations at all are sometimes thought of in these stories as inbuilt expectations so you know I'm not quite sure how I want to think about this bit of of the way it's sometimes pitched but you might think that the shape of my hand or or the shape of the fish you know maybe the shape of the fish is a kind of expectation about the hydrodynamics of seawater it's you know I think that's Personally, I think that kind of stretches the notion of expectation a little bit too far. But you can kind of see what's going on there. There's a sort of fitting between the physical structure of the system and the kind of environment that it's got to deal with. And and that surely is a kind of bedrock relation here, both uh, um, what we might think of as, as mental fitting and physical fitting. Um, the other part of your question or, or, or the question nexus there mm-hmm. was... Uh, about um, about the extent to which this could sort of lock you, you you could sort of end up locked into a, a set of biased expectations that nonetheless constructed uh, constructed your world and I suppose we do we do see that um, of course our expectations are or our predictions are um, tested in action, and so at some level um, at some level, it would be right to say that creatures whose whose predictions about the flow of sensory information are not right just don't get to um, hang around and uh, replicate their kind, so there's probably a kind of Quinean thought there somewhere um that you know mm-hmm. those creatures do us the favor of of uh, not not being viable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think the worry around yeah. viability there uh, you know there, there will be there will be room. We will harvest you're right to say that if these stories are right, then there's a fundamental reason why we should go around um, uh, in part at least harvesting evidence selectively harvesting evidence um, that is likely to confirm our own predictions uh, I think you know, I think we do see this. We see this in ourselves, you know, probably it's very hard to force yourself to be as open to the counter-evidence for your own story as, uh, as it is to be open to more good data points that fit within the story. Um, so I think that uh, one of the things that we do through culture is that we begin to push back a little bit against some of these um, inbuilt tendencies towards confirmation bias and, mm-hmm. and all, lots of other kinds of cognitive bias. Um, But it probably is written fairly deep into the system. The thing that that pushes against it that's also written deep into the system is um, the need to have good information so as to be better at minimizing prediction error over the long term. And so for that reason, there is a a built-in push here to sometimes search out situations in which you temporarily increase prediction error so as to decrease prediction error over the long term. And that's where a lot of um, contemporary work in sort of bringing this stuff together with um, uh, decision theoretic work on the differences between kind of a habitual response and non-habitual response, and so on, seem to be going. It's mm-hmm. that sort of emerging as a sort of optimal way of trading off exploration and exploitation.
1: Right. I, I think one of the one of the worries here is that um, the evidence itself. You know, will it will be, in some sense, relative to the model, the predictions that you already have, um, and so even if you don't select, even okay. if you're not guilty of confirmation bias in in that sense of you know selectively looking for information or preferring and waiting higher information that confirms rather than disconfirms, mm-hmm. um, there's still the, there's still the problem of the information itself is is not this objective. The concern is there is no such thing as sort of theory neutral evidence, and so um, the the problem is is actually a bit
2: worse. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of right in the sense that that although there's of course lots and lots and lots of room for prediction error signals here and they're in a certain sense theory neutral because they're just saying the theory that you're currently trying to apply to me isn't working, get a better one. Um, at the same time, prediction error signals are always constructed relative to very specific predictions, and that means that the space that you're moving in is uh, is, is, is pretty much, um, is pretty much uh, fixed there. Mm-hmm. But if you go on and on encountering prediction error signals – uh, that's to say um, you have prediction errors that keep coming up and they can't be resolved by finding better predictions that you can currently make, then that drives the system into greater plasticity and under those conditions that's when you start to be able to learn brand new world models. That's, that's what uh, on some stories is going on in um, both in early learning and for example in schizophrenia where maybe prediction error signals are consistently and falsely generated and eventually push the system into enough plasticity to have to learn a really weird kind of world model to cope with them, uh, a model which then plays a role in constructing perception itself, and so it seems to be somewhat self-confirming. Um, and at that point, uh, yeah, these systems certainly, there's plenty of room for them to, to go wrong and to lock agents into world models, which at least we Sort of neurotypical um, perspective on it, think are, um, think are wrong I, I kind of think this is a good thing. I mean we know that we know that stuff goes wrong um, and I think these these stories give us a way of understanding understanding that going wrong where it's not a, it's not a failure of inference, if you like. The, the inferential machinery is probably functioning just just fine. It's if you like, it's um, it's good inferential machinery being given bad information by falsely generated prediction errors, for example. Um, so, so I think that does give us a, a useful way of looking at this. Um, I don't know if there's some, maybe there's a sort of deeper metaphysical issue here that you're that you're kind of getting at a bit, which is that um, that in a sense the the sort of the, the don 't quite know how to put this what could even possibly count as evidence um, as evidence for a particular organism is relative to that organism's um, way of harvesting sensory information, its way of life and so um, so the human umwelt, if you like, is something that um, that we can 't get outside of very easily, certainly not in ordinary perceptual experiences. It's possible that um, that some of our cultural constructs, like uh, like mathematics and science, help us get beyond that. Witness the kind of weird pictures of the world that we get out of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. But you know, for ordinary daily perception, it does look like we're we're you know pretty much stuck with uh, with a kind of world model which is fitted to the kind of creature that we are. Um, I don't know quite what the alternative is. A world model that's not fitted to kind of <laughs> – well, I mean, what good's that going to be? So. Right.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Um, we, we're out of time, and I, I actually was going to ask about uh, the implications for schizophrenia, but you, you sort of went over that very quickly. Um, but let me just um, – uh,
2: Actually, one, there was one thing that I, I thought might be nice to say when that came up. Yeah, fine It was quite a quick thing, but um, if the you know the the sort of best models here seem to be saying that there's a there's an issue here in something like compromise top down prediction in schizophrenia,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, a good thing about looking at it through that lens is it makes sense of the one or two paradoxical improvements. So stuff like. Um, schizophrenics are better at tracking um, a a sort of dot on a screen when it suddenly changes direction unexpectedly. Um, And that makes sense if, as it were, they're bad at using the present trajectory to project it into the future by apt prediction. They're Mm -hmm. actually worse at that, worse at at kind of um, predicting the trajectory through an occlusion. But better at tracking through an unexpected change. So I think it's a kind of, it's a, hmm. it's a nice effect of these sort of stories that they begin to get to grips with these paradoxical improvements too.
1: Interesting. Um, well, I I'd like to close with a question about um, where you plan to uh, go next in terms of your your research. Um, is are you will be? Well, you mentioned earlier you just had this. Um, uh, European Research Council funding for a four-year project um, connecting this work uh, to to consciousness,
2: right? Um, so,
1: I, is that is that sort of where you'll be working uh, next? Is that the main?
2: That's certainly that's the next that's the next four years. It's um it's a project called Expecting Ourselves. Um, and that's the title that came um, from uh, a commentary that Dan Dennett actually wrote on uh, on on a paper of mine in BBS on this stuff. Um, and the kind of idea is to to look at the role of prediction in the construction of conscious experience through multiple levels, so basic perception, and then sort of um, introspectively inflected um, experience. So seeing what difference interceptive sensitivity makes to the way that we construct conscious experience and then leading out at the in the in the third kind of last bit of it to high level stuff like um, um, agents that have self models that enable them to predict their own emotional responses to events that haven't yet happened and stuff like that so there's a so, the idea is to to look at the role of prediction in these sort of different scales or different sorts of phenomena uh, and see if there's a, a unifying story that can be told using those um, using those bedrock elements of predictions, precisions, and prediction errors
1: okay very good um well we we are out of time unfortunately it could because there's a lot of interesting things to ask about about that project um, as well as the book itself so um, let me just say. Um, thank you for taking the time to um, to discuss the book with me for and for our listeners to enjoy hearing about it.
2: And thanks ever so much. It's uh, it's been it's been great and uh, uh, nice probing questions on uh, on all of that skeptical epistemic stuff. <laughs> thanks. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, thanks again, and um, I look forward to reading your new work.
2: Thanks ever so much. Okay.
1: Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Andy Clark, Professor of Logic and Metaphysics at the University of Edinburgh. We've been talking about his new book, Surfing Uncertainty, Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind, which is just out from Oxford University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thank you for listening.